Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Holy crap, it's here. This has taken me seven months of my life to complete, and I am super pleased how it turned out. What is Miguel talking about? It's my new book, Expat Secrets. You're going to be able to find it on Amazon right now. Let me just give you the full name of the book because I think it says a lot, okay? Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. Boom. I really like that. Basically, the book breaks down everything you need to know for leading an international life. This is timely information and modern, and it's a fun read. You can buy your copy right now by going to Amazon and searching Expat Secrets. This will really help support the show to grow. And if you want to be an awesome human being, what I want you to do is leave the book an honest review on Amazon. It actually makes a huge difference to new authors like me. Seriously, I mean this. Please get a copy of the book and please leave the book a review. It's just good karma. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is Inc.com's most popular columnist. In 2017, his online articles for Inc.com alone attracted more than 20 million readers. He is one of LinkedIn's most widely followed influencers, and his work has also appeared on Time, The Huffington Post, Fast Company, Business Insider, Entrepreneur, MSNBC, and CNBC. He's a sought-after ghostwriter for the world's top business leaders, and he has written more than 50 books, including six number one Amazon bestsellers in business and investing. And he is the author of The Motivation Myth, How High Achievers Really Set Themselves Up to Win. Please welcome to the show, Jeff Hayden. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm great, McKellen. I'm even better now after that intro. It sounds like my mother wrote that. (laughs) That was quite a mouthful, but my goodness, the amount of accomplishments to trying to put this into an introduction was really challenging. But uh, why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of walk us through your backstory, how you got into ghostwriting, how you became number one Inc.com's most popular columnist. Like, these are big accomplishments. I worked my way through college. I worked in a manufacturing plant in the town that I lived and really liked manufacturing. I liked being on the factory floor. So when I graduated, I was interviewing for jobs, and they were all with 40-year-old men in cubicles. And of course, I'd love to be a 40-year-old man now because I'm well past that. But at the time, <laughs> that seemed horrible. And so the plant manager where I worked said, you know, there's a, a new factory that's just been built here in town. R.R. Donnelly is the owner of the factory. They're the world's largest commercial printers. 
if you like doing this, go over there, get it on the ground floor. There'll be plenty of room for you to grow if you're good at what you do. And I thought, well, that sounds kind of cool. So I was the stereotypical college boy in the factory. So that meant I had to earn my way up, basically, probably more so than some people. But I started at the very bottom, worked my way up, got to work through a variety of manufacturing jobs, got into some leadership positions. And my goal the whole way through was I wanted to someday run a plant. I wanted to be the person in charge. And so 17 years in, I was running a plant. That was my goal. You know, I'm there, right? Three years after that, I thought, wow, I don't want to do this anymore. This is, you know... Be careful what you wish for, I guess. And so I looked around and thought, well, what else do I want to do? And I had been whining about not liking my job anymore. I felt like I was discussing it, but my wife felt like I was whining. And so he finally said, well, you know, what else do you want to do? Because you've either got to do something or you've got to decide that this is, you're going to be happy where you are. And I said, well, I'd really like to write. And of course, we both looked at each other and paused for a minute because I had never written anything other than things that I wrote for work, like proposals or project justifications or things like that. So she actually got me my first paid writing job. She found a guy who had a startup and needed a press release. And she came home and said, I got you your first gig. You're writing a press release. I'd never written a press release, didn't know what they looked like. You know, this was not pre-internet, but it was early internet. And so, you know, you couldn't look around for tons of great examples. And so that's easily the worst paid job I've ever had because it took me forever to write and I got 50 bucks for doing it. But the, the guy was happy and he hired me to do a couple other things. And then my wife got me on, she actually created a profile for me on, at the time it was called Elance. I think now it's either Upwork or we, I forget what it's called now, but they've transitioned to another name. But it's one of those job sites where people can post projects and then freelancers can bid on them. And so... She, for a while, was getting me projects there because I was too scared to do it myself because I didn't think I had the talent to come through for anyone. So she would hand me these things and say, here's your next project. I'm like, oh, man, you know, I've got to actually do this. So, but I figured it out. And that was great. It wasn't, it wasn't lucrative. And I was still working my full-time job, by the way. I do not believe you have a lot of entrepreneurs in your or aspiring entrepreneurs in your audience. And I don't believe in just jumping off the cliff and starting something new. I think you have to prove to yourself that there is a market there and that you can make some money at it before you do. So I was doing nights and weekends writing and wrote a couple books and kind of built from there. And then I, I know this is really long, so forgive me. But I reached a point where the problem with being a ghostwriter is it's a little bit like Fight Club. First rule of Fight Club is you can't talk about Fight Club. First rule of ghostwriting is you can't talk about the people you've written for. You can't talk about the projects that you've done. So it's really hard to stand in front of somebody and say, I will do this for you. And they say, oh, yeah, well, who have you worked for? Well, I can't tell you. <laughs> well, what kind, of, what kind of stuff have you done? Oh, I can't tell you that either. But I promise I'll do a great job. You know, that's not the best marketing move in the world. So my wife again said, you know, you need, your, you need some stuff in your own name. And I said, nobody wants to read anything if they think I wrote it. You know, they want to read the stuff that they think my clients wrote. So... I finally agreed that she was right. And so I pitched at the time what were the top 10 business sites and said, hey, I would love to write for you. I've got this really good Rolodex. And, you know, got access to lots of cool people. You know, can you? And so one of them responded. And that's how I started at the time. That was BNET. It was a CBS Money Watch site. And I started writing for them. And that went really well. And then the editor there, I guess when he was the president at the time, he moved over to Inc. 
he said, hey, do you want to come over to Inc? I said, yes, because it's a bigger platform. So that's how I ended up at Inc. And then as far as getting a big readership, which I get this question a lot, you know, the key is just like any other business, if you focus on the benefits to your customer or in my case to readers, and that's all you worry about, and it's actionable and it's useful and it's practical and it's helpful, then people want to read your stuff and people want to share your stuff. If there's any part of it that is built on the greater glory of you, if there's any ego tied up or any like self-indulgence to it, then people don't care because there's enough of that out there. So I don't know, I went way around the barn and I'll stop there, but that's how I ended up here. <laughs> so for my listeners who don't understand what ghostwriting is, without getting into depth of who you wrote for, can you quickly explain to us what ghostwriting is? At the simplest level, it would be if, you know, let's say you got a gig writing a column for Forbes, but you don't really have the time and you don't, maybe you don't even have the skill, you do, but some people don't, to write it. So you would hire someone like me to write it for you, but then it appears in your name. And so like I write books for people, their name is on the cover, it is their book, but I actually did the work. So it's a little bit like if you want to build a house and you have plans that you've created, you hand those to a contractor and the contractor builds the house, but you still own it. The contractor doesn't get to live there with you after it's all over. So in effect, I'm just, it's, a, it's like being a contractor. In some cases, the client has a fair bit of ideas about what they want the content to be, you know, what they're going to say. In other cases, and this is kind of my wheelhouse, the person has a profile that would allow them to get a publishing deal. They have a profile that would allow them to market a book because that's extremely important, but they don't actually even know what they want their book to be. And so I'll come up with the concept. I'll come up with all the material. We'll talk a little bit about some stories and some anecdotes and things that we can put in there to make it more personal to you. But basically, it's a me production on behalf of that other person. So like if I was going to do that for you, I would try to channel my inner Mikkel and write a book that represents you. And of course, you get to give me feedback and you get to help edit and stuff like that. But most people don't change very much of what I have done. At this point, I'm really good at figuring out, you know, you and what you're trying to say and what's best for you and how you want to position yourself and what people want to read and how it can be valuable to the audience. So I get very few revision requests. But basically, it's like being a contractor. And are there any moral or ethical blockades for doing this type of thing? I don't think so. Of course, you would think I would say that because this is part of how I make my living. But the ultimately, let's say let's say you pick up a book and you read it. Let's say it's about entrepreneurship and you read it and you come out the other end and you say, wow, I learned five or six really cool things. I've got two or three ideas I can put into place right now. I know how I want to do this and this and this. I'm inspired and motivated and educated and hopefully maybe a little bit entertained. That was awesome. Do you care who wrote the book that you just read? Do you care that it's you know John Doe or do you care that it's Jane Doe that actually wrote it? You care about the value that you receive. So that's the first part. Then the second thing is, you know, take a iPhone. You think iPhone and you immediately think Steve Jobs. Do you really think Steve Jobs sat down and designed the whole thing, prototyped <laughs> the whole thing, and created the whole thing? No, he didn't. But did he stand behind it and say, this is my vision and this is what I want? And did he not shape it so that it ended up the way that it did? Well, of course he did. But it's a team involved. So the person, that's na the person whose name is on the cover... They still said, yes, this represents me. This is what I want people to read. This is what I believe. This is what I feel. This is whatever it is. I'm standing behind it. 
the fact that I had help creating it makes me no different than any other person in the world that creates any other product or that runs any other business. Because it's always a team if it's something valuable. So I don't think there's anything unethical about it whatsoever, as long as that person stands behind. Now, you've got those situations where, like Charles Barkley, the basketball player, he got in trouble for something in his biography years ago, his autobiography. <laughs> it, like, I don't remember what it was, but he said, oh, I was misquoted. It's like, wait a minute, it's your book. How do you get misquoted <laughs> in your own book? So, so is that a little bit weird? Yeah, I would say so. But otherwise, if you got value from it and it helped you in some way, does it matter whether the person slaved away on it by themselves or whether they had help? And I would argue that it doesn't matter. Well, it's an interesting topic because I do quite a bit of writing, certainly not as much as you do. And we'll, we'll get into some of your other writing projects later on. But more than anything, I'm a reader and I read, you know, 100, 120, 130 books a year. And sometimes I see these first time authors and I read the book and I put it down and I'm like, wow, that is incredible. Like, I can't write like that. And I write every day. Like, how did they do that? And I'm guessing that a lot of it is done through ghostwriting. Yeah, I would say in the nonfiction world, and I'm just, these numbers, I have no data to back this up. So please don't <laughs> write me and say you're wrong because I probably am. But I would say that in the nonfiction world, especially in the business nonfiction, well over half of the books that you will read have either been 90% or at least 70% ghostwritten, I would say. Now, the person that's, that's, whose name is on the cover in all likelihood, had a lot of input into, here's what I want it to be, and here's my sections, and here's kind of what I want to get across. But the actual writing part of it probably happened somewhere else. And that's okay, because if the ideas are great, and you had someone help you with the wording so that they come across as best possible, that's a good thing for the reader. That's not a bad thing, because what you ultimately want is to get benefit from it. So if I've got great ideas, but I can't express them, that doesn't help you at all. But if I have great ideas and someone helps me express them in a way that you understand and gain value from, well, that's awesome. So you should, as a reader, be glad about that. So hiring a ghostwriter can help you really to articulate a lot of these ideas and present them in a method that someone's able to consume and understand at a better level then. Well, that's, yeah, it's self-serving of me to agree with you <laughs> because that's what I do for a living. But I do, there are times that I know that I have made a difference and made something better than it would have been. And that really is my job. And at this point, I can kind of pick and choose the projects I take on. And so one of my criteria is, is this something that I think will be really great and that I can add value to from my side? And that's, that's awesome. Early on, I was taking any project I could get because I had to put food on the table. But now, now I get to put food on the table and you know, make some decisions about the stuff that I work on. So who, if, and I don't know if this is possible or not, but who generally has books get ghostwritten? Is it CEOs? Is it entrepreneurs who are starting a business? Like what type of person usually wants to put out these types of books? The most common ghostwritten thing, and I don't do these because I would be terrible at it, but it would be like the autobiographies, you know, like presidential autobiographies, for instance. You know that, you know, George Bush is not sitting down and writing his memoirs. <laughs> you know, I just don't see that. Then the other way, if you just want to try to figure it out, think about what the person does on a daily basis and the responsibilities they have and decide whether they really had the time to sit down and write 70,000 words. And that usually is a really good answer. People who make a living writing and speaking are probably writing most of their stuff because that is what they do. But if you're running a Fortune 500 company, 
you probably don't have the time in the middle of that to write the whole book. And that's okay. Well, because I'm working on my first book, and what a process. Like, I've been on this for, oh my God, like four or five months now, and it's just a fraction of the way completed. And, you know, getting a helping hand doesn't seem like such a bad thing, to be honest. Right. Well, there's pro- it's a skill like any other. I, there's nothing magical about writing, I don't think. It's just like if we use that contractor example earlier. The first time you tried to build a house, if you had not really train, train to do so, it's going to take you a whole lot longer than it will after you built your 20. And so that's part of it is just getting your own process and figuring out what works for you and kind of working through that to where it, it is an autopilot, but it gets a lot more streamlined. So, but I have a rule like for articles that I write. If I do say an 800 page or 800 word, which is about my average for the stuff I write for ink. If I haven't finished my first draft, and by first draft, I mean 99% what the final draft will be because I don't really do successive drafts. If I can't do that in about 25 minutes for, say, 800 words, then I haven't figured out what I want to say. And so that's a big problem as well. Sometimes people will sit down and say, okay, I need to write, but you don't really know what you want to say yet. And it's really hard to force that because then you're just writing. You're, you're focused on the craft of writing as opposed to, I've got this idea and I want to put it down. And so I, that's, that's a barometer for me. But then the, the other part of it is, of course, just the process. And you get better with practice. Everybody does. So do you carry around like a notebook and you jot down ideas? Or like how did, how did you plan these things out in advance so that when you do sit down at the typewriter or at the computer, you know how to put words to paper? I have stuff everywhere. <laughs> so <laughs> like, I keep notes on my phone. I have a pad that I keep in every vehicle that we own. I have a pad that's in my bedroom in my nightstand. I have another one that sits in the kitchen on the counter in a place where no one's allowed to touch it and you can't move it and I don't care if it looks a little cluttered, my pad gets to stay there. Um, but I have things that I keep around because I, I have ideas all the time and I lose them. Whenever I think, oh, that's a great idea, I'm gonna remember that. When I get home, I'm gonna write it down. When I get home, I have forgotten it every single time. And so if I don't write it down right away, then it's gone forever. And then sometimes after a while, I'll kind of collect all those and, and make a master list and then weed through them and say, okay, that one's terrible. You know, that one sounded a lot better three weeks ago, but it sounds bad now. But I write stuff down all the time. The only time it's frustrating for me is like, I like to ride bikes and so I'll be out riding. And for whatever reason, that's a good time to think, even though, you know, it's a lot of effort and I'm you know, right on the red line and, and can't breathe half the time and whatever. That strips away a lot of the clutter in your mind, and sometimes cool ideas will come to me or ways to, to work through a problem I have and something I'm writing will, will occur to me, but I can't write it down because <laughs> I'm on a bike in the middle of nowhere. And about half of the time, I'll hang on to them by the time I get home, and about half of the time, they'll be gone. So that's really frustrating. But otherwise, yes, I write stuff down instantly. The Getting Things Done system, I forget, to David Allen, I think? He's got the book, and he's got the system. It's called Getting Things Done, and his, his whole feel is your head is for having ideas, not holding them. And so whenever you have something, if you write it down, you free up space to have more ideas and you hang on to your ideas and you're not busy worrying about what you will forget. That makes perfect sense. For me, I'm such an audio person. I do write down a lot of things, but for me, I'm always taking like audio notes. So I'll just leave myself little verbal notes about an idea and then I'll label it and I'll put it in, say something like Evernote or one of these types of things. 
and be able to refer to it later. Even when I'm writing my book, a lot of times I will just take a piece of paper, I'll jot down some of the ideas that I want to do, and then I'll get out on my podcasting gear and then talk about that idea for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, then have it transcribed and then try to work off of that and make that into a chapter. That's a perfect way to go. I, I have people all the time that are trying to write something and they'll ask me for help. And let's just say it's a thousand word article and they, they'll ask for help and I'll read it and I'll think, okay, somewhere in here is the germ of an idea, but you're trying to write like a writer. And that's where people get hung up because they're so focused on the craft part that they forget the idea part. And I'll just say, you know what? Forget this on your screen right now. Just tell me what it is you're trying to say. Walk me through whatever this is. And I'll turn on my recorder on my phone without them knowing. And they'll talk for like 10 minutes and it sounds awesome. And then I'll say, okay. And I'll hand it to them and I'll say, okay, either get somebody to transcribe that or type it up yourself. But there's 80% of what you wanted to say. You just have to clean it up. So that whole write like a writer thing really messes people up. And if you can just find a way like you do, most people can articulate verbally what they want to get across. So do it that way and then just clean it up. It's not that hard. And actually, because of internet writing, people appreciate or even expect for the writing to be more casual and establish more rapport and almost feel more like a conversation because that's more what we're used to now. If it's too professorial, it's off-putting to most people. So you can actually be conversational in your writing and it's okay because people actually respond really well to that, which works great for me because I, I just go with conversational and it seems to be fine. Well, I love reading conversational. Like this idea of someone locking themselves out in the cabin and writing the great American novel, you know, that's not really, I think, how a lot of writing is done in today's day and age. I think it's really these hacks and these tricks and the things that we're discussing today that can really help make your job a lot simpler. You just have to figure out what works for you. And part of that is just trying a few things or thinking about how you best express yourself, whatever that may be. You know, clearly you're a verbal guy. And so why wouldn't you verbalize the basis of your book and then clean it up and make it written. Why wouldn't you do that? It would be silly to do it any other way. So when I was doing my research, it says that you've written over 50 books. It's actually 60 now. I have enough. 60 that. books. That's ghostwritten. Those are not in my name. So how many in your name? The only one that is actually a proper book is the one you referenced earlier on, The Motivation Myth. I have one where... You know, I've written a bunch of columns for Inc. and I've done some stuff on LinkedIn and people kept emailing me and saying, you know, it'd be great if a lot of these were collected. And I would think, you know, because I would buy it and I would think, well, you know, dude, you can get these free. <laughs> They're just <laughs> out there, you know. And But I had enough of that that I finally thought, okay, what the heck. And so I cobbled together a bunch of my columns and put them into logical groupings like leadership or performance or productivity or stuff like that. I spent like half a day doing that and creating some intros and some transitions, had a guy make a PDF out of it and make an Amazon file out of it. And I stuck it out there and said, okay, if you want this thing, cool, that's awesome. And I would just put a little link to that at the bottom of my LinkedIn posts, you know, saying, Hey, if you like this, I've got this book, you know, but it is old stuff. I was very clear about it. It was eight ninety nine, And I think what I had to give up, if it was, if you bought it in PDF, I think I gave up 55 cents of that. And if you bought the Kindle, you know, Amazon takes 30%, which is okay because they are making a market for you. So I'm not complaining. It sounded like I was, I'm not, but I think I, I don't know if you want numbers. I think I made 
I netted about 250,000 off of that. And it was old stuff that people could get for free. <laughs> so, so that one is a book, but it's self-published. And so this is the first, like the motivation myth is it's a penguin random house book. That's my publisher. You know, it's a proper book. It's all new. All, all original content, not yeah. from. Uh, I, for a long books. time, a long, for a long time, I don't know, like most people, I am a mixed bag of things. And so there are certain areas where I have a probably overly healthy ego. And then there are other areas where I'm completely insecure and anxious. And so I was convinced that no one would buy a book in my name. So it took me a long time to get over the hurdle of saying, you know, because my agent even said, you know, you got 970,000 followers on LinkedIn. Do you not think a few of them might want a book? And I was like, yeah, I know, but and I would whine and I would whatever. And part of it's just fear, you know, because you hang yourself out there whenever you do stuff. You hang yourself out here with this podcast. You know, you put it out and you don't know whether people will like it or not. You don't know how many people want to download it. There's all that stuff. So there's risk involved for everyone. So it took me a long time to kind of get over that. But And that was a really long-winded answer. But the reason I went through that is because that's what every entrepreneur faces. You've got this idea. You've got, you want to start a business. You want to, even if it's a side hustle, and you've got that fear of, but how will it be received? And will this go anywhere? And will I be embarrassed? Everybody goes through that. Everybody. So accept that that's part of it and go for it. And realize that even if whatever you try fails, you should still be proud of yourself because you tried. Because for every person that tries, there's 10 that think about trying and never do. No, it's brilliant. I really like that. Just going to take a quick break. Okay, new book is here. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. This book took me seven months to write and publish, and it's a culmination of some of the best stuff I've learned over my 20 years living as an expat. I cut out all the crap and tried to give you the real meat with this book. If you ever wanted to live overseas, or if you are already living overseas and you want to take things to the next level, to legally reduce your tax bill, to live a more international life, and get the best of everything planet Earth has to offer, then you must go to Amazon right now and purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Pause the episode and go take a look. It's cool. I'll wait. Seriously, you guys are going to love this. Enjoy the book. One of the things that really struck me in the book, and, and I think that you just slightly touched on it, and I want you to go a little bit more in depth, is the serial achiever. So normally when someone would say what they do, like I'd say I'm a podcaster, but I could also say I am a podcaster and I am a blogger. And it's this and, and you write an entire chapter really about and. Can you break down some of these concepts for me and why you should be a serial achiever? Yeah, I, I came up with serial achiever just because... You know, there's, there are several I don't know, conventional wisdom things. One of them is that to truly succeed and excel, you have to specialize, which for some people, that is probably the case. But then that limits you because I think we're all capable of doing more than one thing at a really high level. And I know for sure we are all capable of enjoying one or more things at a pretty high level. So there's that part of it. And then the other part where I actually came up with it when I first started ghostwriting you know, I was making some money, but it wasn't going great. I had quit my full-time job because I knew I could at least make a living, but it wasn't anywhere close to what I had been making. 
And so I was looking for revenue wherever I could get it. And I was a decent photographer, still am. And I thought, well, shoot, what's the most lucrative form of photography? It's weddings. I'd never done a wedding before, but I thought, if I work hard at this, I can do this. So I started photographing weddings and got really good at it. And it was pretty lucrative. I didn't love doing it, but I liked doing it. So I was at a wedding one time and you know, the guy said, you know, oh, you're probably doing a wedding next weekend. Where is that one going to be? And I said, no, I'm, I don't have another one for about a month. And he said, well, how do you make a living? And I said, well, I'm also a ghostwriter. And he looked at me and said, so you do that? And I said, yeah. And I said, and sometimes I, I still do some productivity consulting for some manufacturing plants because that's my background. And he looked at me and I could tell he was thinking, okay, you must suck at all of these. The, the jack of all trades, master of none. Exactly. So you, you have to do all these things because you're not very good at any of them and you're cobbling together a living. And I thought, no, that's really not true because I've got, by this point, I've ghostwritten some best selling books. You know, I've photographed some celebrity weddings. I, I consult with Fortune 50 companies on productivity. So, yeah, I, I'm not the best in the world, but I'm doing okay here. And so that kind of made me walk away and say, the and thing, there's a stigma against it, but I think it's really the way to go because if I'm doing one thing, like say I'm ghostwriting, and then I step out and do something else, that's not wasting my time because not only do I gain another skill, meet some people, make some contacts, all of that other stuff, but I will learn things that I can bring back to my primary function. You always do when you broaden. And so that's a bonus in and of itself. And then, of course, in, in a world, ooh, that sounds like one of those movie guys, in a world, um, but, but in a world where disruption happens fairly regularly, to think that you can be something today and 30 years from now still be that thing, uh, that may not be the bet that you want to place. And so constantly evolving and being an and and having different skills and tool sets, it's really awesome. And the best part about it, I think, is that if you've gotten into a profession, let's say you're an engineer, and you've been doing it for 10 years, you're probably really good at it, you're probably highly paid, and you're probably a little bored because every project is kind of like the last one and you start to have seen these things and you know it's same stuff, different day. So doing something new lets you be a beginner again, which is fun because learning is fun and learning is motivating, but it also kind of humbles you a little bit and brings you back down to earth in your primary function because then you treat people a little bit better and you treat people that struggle or that make mistakes better because you realize, oh yeah, I still do that you know, because I got this other thing. So there's all kinds of reasons, and I hope that answers your question. But I, I love people that are and. Oh, and to, to finish it off, there's one more thing I'd like to talk about. Let's say that you have a hobby that you want to pursue or some outside interest. Say you want to run a marathon, okay? It takes a long time to train for it. You finally run one. That's awesome. Now you focus on, you know, I'd like to go faster or I'd like to qualify for, say, the Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon or the whatever marathon. You work at that stuff, and five years from now, if it starts to get boring, you don't have to stay a marathoner. You can say, you know what? I got out of that what I wanted to get out of that. I'm really interested in painting now. <laughs> and you can become a painter, and you can work at that. And if five or seven years from now, you decide, you know what? That was really fun, but I would really like to get into making furniture. I don't know. I'm picking stuff out of the air. People think that if they put all that time and effort into it and then decide to stop and go to something else that they've wasted that time, that is, but that's not true because you enjoyed it, you learned from it, you gained a skill, you were fulfilled, which we are all looking for, 
and you carry some of those things with you to whatever your next pursuit is. So sometimes I speak at colleges and the, the big question I get is, you know, how do I know that this job is the one that I want to do? And I would say, well, you don't. And you're not going to find the job that you want to do for the next 40 years. Find the job that excites you now and that you feel has a future and then go get involved and try it, see where it takes you and then start looking around and always be open to something else. You don't have to take it, but you always should be looking because you can be more than one thing. And I think that with business, one of the main things that people need to understand is just because it is common in that one industry, say using your engineering, if there is one technique or one idea that's very, very prevalent in engineering, if you move over to manufacturing, maybe they don't have that same idea. Maybe if you move over to writing or to podcasting or to one other thing, any other things, they don't have that type of idea. So it might be very prevalent on one aspect in one job or one career or one business, but in others, it's not. So you can take the best and you can really cherry pick those ideas and move them to other industries. And it's that cross-pollination of ideas that really can make you successful. And it's difficult to tell where some of these ideas are going to surface and you'll never really know until it happens. Well, and the coolest, that's very, all that's exceptionally true. And the other cool thing about it from a personal level if you had to work hard and persevere to gain some skills in one thing, that is a skill in itself. Learning to persevere and work hard and work through the barriers and get to the other end, that's a skill that you can develop. And so if you've done that once, it makes it a lot easier the next time if you decide to take on another challenge because you can think to yourself, okay, well, that looks really hard, but I've done that before. I know how to do that. I may not know how to do the skill, but I know how to work hard and learn and get to the other end. And that opens you up too, because a lot of people won't start things because it seems too daunting. But once you've done one or two hard things, then it's really easy to go. That's okay. I know how to do that. I'm not afraid of that. And it's fun. Well, and I think, Exactly what you're saying. If you put yourself in difficult situations, things like this, they really build character and they really help you to grow. So it doesn't really matter in which direction you're growing often. As long as you're growing, that in itself, I think, is a skill. You know, a lot of people, they do. They stay very stagnant. But by being a beginner, by challenging yourself, by putting yourself in hard situations, it's, it's really amazing what you're able to accomplish. And that motivation that comes with it can carry over to so many different endeavors. Yeah, I, and it doesn't even have to be something that you think is, is wonderful to, to do. Um, in the book, I talk about the year that I did 100,000 push-ups. And that's a stupid goal. And there was no, it is. It's a stupid goal. And there's no tangible benefit to it's, that. It's literally than, on my list of questions that I wanted to talk about. So this is funny. Okay, go, go, it go. It is a stupid goal. But... Believe it or not, and it's been a few years since I did that, sometimes I will come up, I'll come across something that I have to do and I'll think, oh my gosh, that looks really hard. That's gonna take a lot of time, a lot of effort. I wonder if I can get there. And this little voice in the back of my head will say, well, you did 100,000 push-ups, you can certainly do that. <laughs> and it's true. If, if you can do one or two hard things, you put that in your toolkit and whenever you're faced with another one, you can say, well, I did that. Like you were talking about writing your book. I wrote a book in a week and a half once. It was for a publisher that they had a, a big client, a big name who they had a contract with, and they'd already bought advertising in the front of bookstores and all that other stuff. And when you do that, if your book doesn't ship on time, the bookstores don't care. You still have to pay. And so the author had not written the book. And so they called me and said, look, <laughs> we got two weeks. 
is it at all possible that you could do this? And, you know, they dangled enough money to make me feel like it was possible. And so I wrote a book in a week and a half. Actually, it turned out fairly well, surprisingly, since half of it was written when I should have been sleeping. But now if I look at something and I'll say, wow, that's going to be tight and, you know, there's time pressure there or whatever, I can say to myself, well, I did write a book in a week and a half, so, so it is possible. So that is the cool thing about, you said character, and I, I just see it as you gain greater willpower by exercising willpower. And part of it is just the knowledge that you have it in you to do it. But you have to earn that. You can't just dream it. You can't look in the mirror and say, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. That doesn't work. Self-talk doesn't work in that case. But when you have done it, you can look at yourself and say, yeah, I can do that because you earned that. I think another interesting example, and, and this just happened to me this week, was several years ago, because I'm always looking at different investment opportunities and different businesses. And I heard the word aquaponics. And this was, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. And I was like, what the hell is aquaponics? And I, was, I started researching, watching YouTube videos and getting books and technical manuals. And I really got into this idea and I looked at it really in depth. And I must have spent about, I want to say at least four weeks or six weeks trying to figure out if this was a possible business. And in the end, I decided, you know, like, it wasn't for me. It wasn't something I wanted to do. So I just, you know, filed the information away in my head somewhere and didn't really think too much about it. And then, I don't know, about this week, like maybe three days ago or something like that, an investment deal came across my desk about investing <laughs> in aquaponics and is a completely turnkey uh, endeavor. And I didn't have to do any of the research. I didn't need to know. I already had in my head exactly what aquaponics is, why we need it, what the process is. Everything was already there. And then I was able to make such a more informed decision whether this was going to be an investment for me or not based on previous experience. So I think that it's, it's hard to say where things will come up sometimes. I, wrote a, I actually wrote a book. I ghost wrote a book about hydroponics a long time ago. And it sold really, really well, but I have repressed every bit of that experience. Hydroponics, <laughs> was that a pot book? Did you write a book on No, marijuana? I did not write a pot book. <laughs> no, it was. this was before marijuana was legal in any state in the U.S. Um, this has been a long time ago, and it was actually for an Australian client, I think. Um, and he, he, it did wonderfully, but gosh, that was so dull. If you spent four <laughs> weeks on the aquaponics and you came out the other side not not – I don't know. It seemed to me like hydroponics was where fun went to die. <laughs> Not to me, but anyway. But I do. Your point is correct. You. It's amazing if you get dive deep into something, you come out the other end, and maybe it doesn't feel like you. It was useful, or you wasted your time. But I don't think that's true. I think so. You know the band, the Eagles. Yes. Okay. Joe Walsh is in the Eagles, and there's a documentary about the Eagles, and it's awesome. It's called History of the Eagles. I think. But at one point, Joe Walsh is a stoner as stoner could be, I guess. And he says, you know, as you're going through your life, it seems like all this chaos and all these things bouncing off each other and nothing makes sense. But when you look back, you know, it's like a finely crafted novel, which is actually a pretty smart kind of way of looking at it. But as you look back, you now can connect the dots between your aquaponics research and this investment opportunity that came up. And it makes sense. You could never have predicted it. So you don't know where things will go but they usually end up connecting the dots because you connect them based on all the things that you have done and learned and you are able to connect. Them. 
I was actually interviewed on a podcast about a month or so ago called Join Up Dots with David Ralph, and it's exactly what he talks about. So that's definitely a cool podcast to listen to from my followers. I have to check that out. It's really neat. So he built his entire podcast based around this concept of looking back at your life over the last 10, 20, 30 years and how these things made sense and got you to where you are now. And it's a lot of self-reflection. Now, he's very cheeky, and it's, it's quite funny, the interviews, but the concept is really fascinating. You could use that in a simple way. You can use that with me because I spent 20 years in manufacturing and in business, had all kinds of different roles from sales to HR to, to management to whatever. You put all that together, and then I went to Ghostwrite, and you would think, okay, well, all that's lost. But I typically do business entrepreneurship, that kind of ghostwriting. And it's perfect for me because when people talk to me, you know, I'm not just a writer who they have to educate about the business side of it. I used to do that. So I am not only your audience, but I actually know what you're talking about. So we can talk shorthand. So had I planned it, that was the perfect way for me to build a foundation to be able to be a business ghostwriter. But I didn't have that plan. I never even considered that. But that's how it works out in retrospect, which is how my dots connected. Well, really, there's so much lingo out there in whatever industry you're in that a lot of times you can't fake that kind of stuff. If you have 20 years in manufacturing and you have a conversation with someone about that type of work, they'll know whether you spent the time in the industry or not pretty darn quick, I would imagine. Well, on the leadership side of it, especially, because, you know, if you've managed people for a while, we've all been in the same situations. No matter what the industry, there are certain situations that everyone has been in. And you can instantly get that rapport of, oh, yeah, <laughs> been there. And, and that works really well, too. Because ultimately, leadership is leadership, regardless of the, the team or the industry or the business or whatever it may be. You know, working with people is the same. And so that's been really, really helpful. So another chapter in your book, and I think this is a perfect segue, you speak about the differences between coaches and pros. Can you break this down for me a little bit? Because I thought this was really fascinating. <laughs> I've gotten more heat for that. Um, <laughs> and I believe how many life coaches have emailed me. <laughs> so my premise there is, and I'll use, I'll use the marathon example. Let's say that you're not a runner, but your bucket list, one of your items is you want to run a marathon. And so what many people would do is, and let's say you belong to a gym. So you go to the gym and there's a personal trainer there and you say, hey, I want to run a marathon. You know, this is what I'm planning to do. And the personal trainer will ask you lots of questions as they're trained to do about, you know, what's your current fitness level? What do you like to do? How much time do you have to spend? What do you enjoy? You know, and they'll end up coming up with some kind of very soft program for you based on what you say you're willing to do. That's typically what happens. And you'll follow it for a while and it doesn't feel like it's working and you fade away. Or... You go to the guy down the street who has run five marathons and you walk up and say, look, I've never run a marathon. I don't even run, but I would love to run a marathon one day. If you were me, what would your training plan look like? You're going to get something that feels really hard and almost impossible, but it is real world. Here's what you have to do to achieve the goal that you want. And in my view, let's say it's going to take you six months on either program. I would rather do the six months that's really hard, but that has a 99% chance of succeeding as long as I put in the work because it's real world and it's tested as opposed to the softer, 
oh, this suits me as an individual. Oh, I'm a, I'm special. I'm unique. I have special meat with this. Delicate yeah. snowflake type of thing. Yeah, exactly. It, something like that, that six months later, I probably won't succeed in what I did. I put in the same amount of time. To me, the effort felt the same because if I don't know any better, I think the soft program is hard. And yet I didn't succeed. And so I like when I want to do something, I like going to people who have done it, who have experienced it, and who can say coldly, clinically, and without worrying about my feelings, here's what you have to do because they know it works. And so to me, a coach is a person who, you know, I, I run into this a lot at, at gyms. I'll, I'll see the personal trainers and I know they have been trained in personal training, but I will look at them and think, it's like the doctor that weighs 300 pounds that tells you you need to lose weight. Yeah, it's like, and you smokes know, a pack of cigarettes a day. Yeah, exactly. It's like, dude, you know, show me, show me that you have done this. I like the people that have done that. So to me, a coach is a person who has been taught how to teach people, which there's a value in that. And then the pro is the person who has actually done it and who will tell you what you need to do. And so one of the examples in my book, I decided I wanted to ride this Grand Fondo. If you're not familiar, Grand Fondo is just a mass participation cycling event. The one that I wanted to ride is 102 miles and 11,000 feet of climbing. And, you know, it's like hot death. And I had four months to do it, but I decided I wanted to do it. And so I went to a local mountain bike pro who's been a national champion, almost made the Olympic team for the U.S. And he's a stud. And I said, you know, I want to do this. And he said, well, I said, what would you do? And he said, well, first I had to just quit because you're never going to do it. And I said, no, <laughs> let's pretend that I will. And so the first day I had to go out and ride for three hours. Now, I was not riding a bike when this all started, but that was part of my program. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go do this. And so I had a very hard program that he put me on, and it sucked. And I wanted to quit a bunch of times. But on the day, you know, I finished in the top 30% or so of all the people that wrote it. It was a great day. It was a really hard day, but it was a great day. I felt good at the end of it. Because I had trained for it in a real-world way, had I gone to somebody else and said, what would you do? I'd have gotten something softer, and I probably would not have succeeded. And so if you want to succeed at something really hard, you need someone to tell you what you actually have to do. And maybe that is a coach who has coach in their title, or maybe it's a pro, whoever it may be. But you've got to get clear-eyed, this is what you have to do information. You can't get the well, I'm going to give you something bespoke just for you because you're special and you're an individual because it probably won't work. There are so many perfectly good wheels out there that all you have to do is follow them. You don't need to reinvent it for yourself. I know we're taught to feel like we're all special and individual, but 99% of it, we're all about the same if you get right down to it. So you might adjust a little bit, but you only adjust after you have data that tells you okay, I need to do this a little bit differently because this isn't working, but this will. But at least at first, follow what somebody tells you what to do because they know. And if they're a pro, they truly do know. Well, and to bring things full circle back to entrepreneurship, this is why I give traditional education such a hard time. Going to university and learning business from someone who read about business in a book, maybe studied it academically, is not really going to prepare you to be an entrepreneur, to build your business. I reckon, and, and you use the word pros and coaches, but for me, I use the word mentor. I go to mentors for 
things that I want to do. And I look at, okay, what have they done in their life? What are their successes? And if I want to emulate that, I just go to them and pay them what they need. And they tell me what they did. And I do the same thing and I get the same results. Like it's really, a lot of times it's not rocket science, you know? Yeah, but you're picking a pro. You're picking a pro to mentor you. That's exactly what you're doing. You're not going to the local business school professor who will give you some theory and stuff, all of which is valuable in a broad sense, but in a micro sense, what you need is, okay, if I need to increase my sales by 30%, do you have some ideas for how I could do that? You want the guy who has sold successfully to tell you what you're missing and what you need. Absolutely. So yeah, you're doing exactly what, I, what I'm saying you're, when you're choosing a mentor. You're not picking the person that you think would be fun to work with. You're not picking the person that you think you would like. Oh yeah, absolutely. Some of my mentors are assholes. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And that's okay. <laughs> Because you're not looking for a friend. You're looking for results that you can create. Correct. I have a friend that's a race car driver, and he's not the, the most favorite person among the other drivers because he races everybody hard, and he's, he's a pain to pass, and they give him a hard time. You know, Even if he's a little slower, he's not going to let you by. You're going to have to pass him. And he says, you know, they, they come to me, and they say, dude, you know, you're not making any friends this way. He said, I got friends at home. <laughs> this is my job. I'm, I'm not trying to make friends on the racetrack. I'm trying to win. So if you're trying to win, you don't need friends. You need people that can tell you what you need to do to win. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. So another one of the phrases that really stuck out for me at the book was the difference between I can't and I don't. Can you break down this concept a little bit for me, Jeff? Yeah, there's, this one isn't for me. The, there was a research study done and the premise of it, I hope I get it right because it's been a long time since I've read it. Uh, it's in your it book, was, so I hope you... <laughs> I know. Did, you, I did someone did, ghostwrite your book, Jeff? No, they did not, but I didn't <laughs> memorize every research study. <laughs> I, there's parts of my book I wish someone had ghostwritten. I look at them now and go, who, who wrote that? Which happens to everybody. There was a research study done, and the focus of the study was there was a group of people that were trying to adopt a new health habit. And so the researchers gave... They broke them into three groups. One group was given no coping strategy to use if they felt like their willpower was flagging and they didn't want to do whatever that habit was that day. Another group was told to say, and we'll say it's a workout. Another group was told to say, I can't miss a workout. That was their coping strategy they were given to use. And another group was told to say, I don't miss workouts. So at the end of this, and I hope I get the numbers right, at the end of the study, I believe it's seven or eight out of 10 of the people who were told to say, I don't miss workouts, had stuck with the new habit, which is pretty good. I believe it was three out of 10 of the people who were given no coping strategy at all stuck with their habit. And oddly enough, only two out of 10 that were told to say, I can't miss a workout stuck with it. So actually saying I can't was worse than not doing anything at all. And what it all comes down to is I can't automatically opens up a negotiation in your mind. So if I'm on a diet and there's a piece of chocolate cake in front of me and I say, ah, I can't have chocolate cake. Well, immediately you start to negotiate with yourself. Well, I could because tomorrow if I go for a longer run, I'll burn those calories off or yeah, I'll have that now. But then tomorrow, you know, I'm really going to buckle down and I'm going to only eat X and Y and Z. And so then you're having to make a choice and then you're having to exercise willpower. Whereas if you say, I don't, what you're doing is saying, this is part of my identity. And the example I typically use for people that have kids 
When you wake up in the morning, do you have to convince yourself to take care of your kids? No, you're a parent, you take care of your kids. That's just what you do. And so if you make something part of your identity, you don't have to make a choice and therefore you don't have to exercise willpower and you just go do it. So it's the difference between like recycling when I trained for that Grand Fondo. At first, I was a guy who saw myself as a person who had to go out and ride my bike every day and I kind of had to force myself to do it because that was the process. But at some point I started to see myself as however amateur and lame, a cyclist. I felt like I was you know, part of the community. I had met some people. I felt like I was a guy that rode bikes. That was part of my identity and it was really easy to go and do it because that was part of who I was. So if you have something you're trying to adopt or you're trying to do, don't say, let's use leadership. You walk by a situation and you realize that you should probably step in because it's only going to fester and you need to nip it in the bud now. Don't say, eh, I can't let this go because it'll turn out bad because that lets you negotiate. Just say, I don't let things like this go and step in and go do that and it's part of your identity. And it's the transition between when you first start leading people, you're a supervisor in effect. You, know, you have rules and processes that you expect people to follow and you're trying to enforce them and then later on, you become a leader, and it's just who you are, and you lead people, and it is what you do, and it's based on that I can't versus I don't. So if you have a new habit you want to start, make it I don't do whatever it is you're trying to avoid. Don't say I can't, because you'll negotiate, and you will almost always lose that negotiation with yourself, because we're all really good. I'm great at coming up with reasons why I can do this after all, because tomorrow I will do X and Y and Z. And of course, tomorrow you don't. I think this is a really interesting topic because when you try to be something opposed to making like rules for yourself, I can do this, I can't do this. When you try to focus on who you want to be and what that person would do, if you are successful, if you are healthy, if you are fit, you know, what does someone like that do? What do they do every day? What are their habits? You know, if you start to think in that type of a manner, I think that you take the decision-making process out of the entire equation. You know, it's not, it's not, do I wake up in the morning and work out? It's no, I am fit and healthy. Therefore it's non-negotiable. I get up, I start exercising. I start doing, what was it? 1500 push-ups a day or something mad, mad that you did like 274, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. I think that that that's an interesting point that leads itself to, to another thing in the book is the whole idea of you ask yourself one question and that comes from Herb Kelleher. He's the CEO of Southwest Airlines. And he frames most of the decisions he makes based on one question. Will this make Southwest Airlines the low-cost provider? If the answer is yes, then whatever it is that came up is something that they should pursue. If the answer is no, and no matter how attractive or fun the idea might be, they're going to put it aside because it doesn't lead them to be what they want to be. And so you can apply that to your life, like you mentioned, getting up and working out because you're a fit person. You can apply that and just say, if you don't feel like going for a run today, does a person training for a marathon miss a workout? No. <laughs> does a person who's trying to lose weight eat so-and-so? No. Does a person who, whatever it may be, if let's say it's entrepreneurship, does a person who is trying to increase sales by 10% stop before he's done with his list of cold calls for the day? No. Does he binge watch 14 hours of Netflix or something like this? <laughs> no. And so if you frame it that way, it's like, okay. And that is an identity thing. It's like, what am I trying to be? And does this behavior 
take me to where I want to go. And if it doesn't, then it's probably not something that you want to do. And once you do that a few times, it becomes part of your identity, and then you don't have to make that choice. Choices are death for willpower. And so if you can find ways not to make choices, but just to do the things that you want to do, then you can roll on. I, I get up in the morning and what I do the night before to make sure that I start every day well is I set out whatever I'm going to do first thing. And it's usually something that I feel is really important to do that day. I set it all up so that when I get up, I can roll down, get in front of my computer, have all my stuff there. There's no resistance whatsoever to me getting started on something hard. And then I'll start. And usually within a couple of minutes, you know, even if you were wanting to procrastinate, once you get started, that all goes away and you realize it wasn't so hard and it wasn't so daunting and you can kind of roll on. And then when you finish it, now you've got the momentum to take you to the next thing because you've had some success and you can kind of roll on. But if I sat down and said, oh, you know, I ought to check my email or I ought to do this or I ought to do that. Now I'm starting to make choices and it's shipping away at my willpower and I might not start what I really need to get done. So that whole choice architecture thing, I think is really important for not having to exercise willpower. The best way to have more willpower is to not need willpower, which I know sounded weirdly zen, but, <laughs> but hopefully that makes sense. It does make sense. It really does make sense. Like once you start thinking about these things, and I think that's why your book is so interesting because it really is contrarian to a lot of the ideas and the beliefs that are put out there in other business books, like what motivation is. Like I think it's right at the beginning of the book, you talk about the correlation between success and motivation and how you're able to generate motivation based on your wins. Like, I think that's, that's brilliant. That's not what a lot of other people teach, but when you actually stop and think about it, it really is true. Yeah, that's why a lot of the book is based on process, though, because for you to have those wins, you need a process that has a really strong likelihood of giving you those little wins, which is why you talk to pros instead of coaches, because pros will put you on the path where you will be able to see your improvement. And whenever you improve, even a little bit, it feels good. It's fulfilling. It feels great. That gives you enough motivation to go to tomorrow and do whatever it is you need to do tomorrow. And you can create this cool virtual cycle of effort, achievement, fulfillment, and happiness equals motivation to go and do it tomorrow. You don't need enough motivation to carry you through six months of something. You just need enough to get you to tomorrow so that you can do what you need to do tomorrow, feel good about it, get the motivation that carries you on to the next day. And if you do it that way, you can roll on your whole life on something because you're feeding yourself little bits of motivation all the time. I don't know anybody that gets that lightning bolt of motivation that is enough to carry them through a year-long slog of something really, really hard and get to the other end. If they're out there, I've not met them. The people that I know that have, been, that have accomplished really, really big things they just do the work day by day and they let those little successes carry them on to the next day. I love it. Brilliant. Words to live by there, Jeff. Thank you so much for your time. Really a pleasure to have you on the show and a super interesting conversation. If my listeners, they want to learn more about the book, if they want to pick up a copy for themselves, if they want to learn more about what you do, where can we send them? I write for Inc. Magazine, Inc.com. If you go to Inc.com and search my name, you'll find about, ooh, I don't know, 1,600 articles or so. I'm on LinkedIn. And I actually do, I connect with people if you want to, and I do answer questions and, 
and try to help people where I can. It may not be within four hours of when you send me a note, so please be patient. But I do that, and my book is sold wherever books are sold. Excellent, and that's The Motivation Myth. I picked up my copy on Amazon. Definitely worth a read. Beautiful cover I wanted to mention to you. I love this cover. Thank you. I think I might be modeling my first book somewhat off of your cover because I love the colors and everything. The funny story about the cover, if I can tell it, is that the, the publisher will mock up covers for you to look at, and I got them and I looked at all of them and thought, oh, I'm <laughs> And so I said, you know, I'm just looking for something simple. Can we just have like a solid white background? I was actually thinking of something along the Malcolm Gladwell style, you know, where it's white, name, something simple. I thought that was clean and whatever. And so they did some white ones and I thought, wait a minute, this is too Gladwell-esque. Yeah. And so, so I said, what about black? And and that's where we ended up. No, really, it is the most beautiful cover. Like, I have a picture of this special folder with covers that I'm going to model from, and this is number one. I think maybe that's, that might actually be how I first started reading your work in the first place, because I think that this came out on Amazon. I saw the cover, and it really stopped me in my tracks, and I was like, i got to find out more about this. So it's kind of funny how things work. And they say, don't judge a book by the cover, but I'm glad that I did. So. Well, I'm glad you did. Thank you. <laughs> Jeff, thanks so much for being on the show. I'll talk to you soon, okay? You take care. You too. Okay, I want to read you the reviews from the back of the book that some massively famous people in the international living space have wrote for me. See if you recognize some of these names, okay? So Gregor Gregerson says, In Expat Secrets, Mikkel elegantly describes the many benefits that accrue to those that choose their country of residence and provides practical and timely tips and examples for doing so. This book is a game changer. Leif Simon says, Having lived and worked overseas for more than a quarter century myself, I've seen expats make every mistake under the sun. Save yourself time and energy and learn from someone who has actually done it. Expat Secrets is the book to get you started in your international journey. Edmund John says, Having incorporated hundreds of companies for my clients over the last seven years, this book is very helpful for those that are starting out. And Michael Cobb says, A huge thanks to Mikkel for clearly written, concise description of the international experience as lived by a true globetrotting pioneer. Especially refreshing is the chapter on the benefits of raising kids overseas. As the father of two third culture kids, I can personally assure you that no education expands the mind more than growing up overseas. And my good friend David McKeegan wrote the foreword to this book. But I will let you read that yourself when you go to Amazon today and you purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Thanks, guys. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming 
to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern time, go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.